Hello, everyone. Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of November. My name is Alex Hochuli, and I'm, as usual, joined by Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are laughing at me. Uh, this is a three articles, which I will explain in just a second. But uh, this one's going out to GenPop, not just to our patrons. So I'm going to start off by asking Phil, uh, straight off the bat, do you prefer GenPop or patrons? What's your favorite? Why are you putting me? Why are you putting me in such an invidious position? I refuse to answer that. I like both GenPop and patrons equally, though obviously patrons are especially especially nice. George, I think the correct answer is that you like people proportionately to the amount of money that they they give to you per month. So. <laughs> Not quite the correct answer there, Phil, but uh, yeah, Gen Pop, Gen Pop are good too, too because they have the potential to give you money. Everyone. Yeah, we, we love the cash nexus here on BungaCast. Uh, but also, it's, but it's not callous with us, it's not a callous no. cash nexus, it's a warm and, and friendly mm, one. Yeah, maybe. debatable, debatable. Uh, I guess the you know, Gen Pop we kind of had a fling with, they come in and out, you know, you have a little bit of flirtation, and it'd be nice to kind of seal the deal, put a ring on it. Uh, anyway, so this is a three articles where we each bring uh, an article <laughs> yeah, to discuss. Yeah, uh, we're each bringing an article to discuss. And uh, we're kind of going around the world today. Three recent events, I guess, about people power, which is maybe a bit of a cliched way to put it. But it's a common feature to all three. So we're going to be discussing Chile's recent election a couple of days ago. We're going to be discussing uh, India's repeal of a controversial law and protests and riots against COVID restrictions uh, across continental Europe. Uh, and we are going to start, well, we're going to start with me because I'm, I'm speaking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep yeah. going. Um, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you, but people power is it's pretty vacuous because pretty much any discussion of politics involves both people and power. So like even no, be, I'm even, not sure that's true George even Robinson what about the Crusoe, European Union even Robinson Crusoe and and man and and Friday there was people in power yeah the, the European Union has some people and has some power I mean mm. I'm, I'm pretty prepared to die on this hill that all right in which case let's move on yeah, let's die on that hill very much alone without any yeah, die on the hill alone. maybe uh, commit maybe commit fucking harakiri on that kill yeah Okay, I'll I'll take that I'll take that under advisement. Thank thanks for your yeah. for your input. I've well, in the, in the last in the last episode, we did conclude that uh, the the right form of cult politics is George committing Harry Curie. Um, that would be the true universal politics. But you'll have to listen to that to figure out what the hell I'm on about. I'm not sure that had universal agreement within the three of us. <laughs> you were the biggest advocate, yeah. actually. Anyway, yeah. we are the first one is Chile's uh, presidential election, which happened this past Sunday. Um, and well, that'll be hmm, two Sundays ago for you, uh, listener. Uh, and so the article I brought to discuss uh, is just one piece of analysis, which actually came out before the election was held in uh, Slate, not a website or magazine that I read that often. Uh, but it's by uh, Lily Loofborough, uh, who normally writes about TV and kind of has written some good stuff on TV. But anyway, has the backlash to progressivism come to Chile, which came out on uh, November 19th? And the story here really is that unlike the kind of duopoly that governed Chile of the center left and the center right, which has governed Chile since the return of democracy in 1990, uh, after the end of the Pinochet dictatorship, uh, this is an election which is seemingly being fought out. And indeed, the first round of elections was fought out between a party of the left, not the kind of uh, establishment center left, and of the far right. And so you have candidate uh, Gabriel Boric and Jose Antonio Cast going to uh, the second round. Now, why is this important? Uh, it's important because, well, as has been discussed by a number of people, obviously Chile was the birthplace of neoliberalism, the first time a kind of full-throated neoliberal experiment was carried out. Um, and as the slogan has had it in Chile in recent years, it's also where it'll die because you have these mass uprisings against, um, well, in favor of, a, of overturning perhaps the whole regime, but certainly uh, in favor of a new constitution to replace the Pinochet era one that has been instituted since, well, since the return of, of democracy. Yeah, uh, and that was that was Boric's slogan. It wasn't um, the kind of, it's not the way in which it would be safe to characterize Chile. That was the slogan the left candidate wanted to make the case. 
Sure, sure. But the uprising kind of carried that slogan. I mean, that was something that was seen on placards and all over the place. And actually, if you want to know more about what was going on, then we have an episode from back uh, in October 2019, where we talked to Pablo, Pablo Luca, episode 93 on uh, on the protest wave in Chile. Um, we'll talk a bit more about that in uh, in just a second, but a bit about the candidates. So these two came in, in first and second place um, with... Uh, cast with nearly 28% and Boric of the left in, with uh, nearly 26% uh, and all the other candidates with, uh, with, much, with much lower um, shares. And so they're, they're going to go off to the runoff. And it seems like a kind of polarization between the left and the far right, uh, which is important and significant in its own right, but also is, um, I think the important thing is that it marks a break with the kind of duopoly that has governed Chile uh, up till now. And um, and the, the what's interesting as well, I'm looking at this kind of in a, in a broader context, is that Cast, who you know is actually the son of a of a Nazi uh, army officer who fled to Chile after the war, um, so you know genuine genuine far right credentials there in the family. Uh, he defends the Pinochet inherited constitution, the whole neoliberal state. Uh, in which you know the state can only provide services which aren't available in the private sector through things like conditional cash transfers, plus a bunch of reactionary culture war stuff about immigrants or on gender and so on. And so he, uh, in some ways, has, uh, or, or at least the support he's gained, has been a sort of radicalization of the right. And so he's been compared to Bolsonaro. And that's interesting because, you know, in Brazil too, it was the, really, it was the traditional neoliberal center right who were defeated by Bolsonaro because that the, the social base of that sort of politics went off to the far right. And that similar thing seems to have happened uh, in Chile. I think that's a good, a good summary, an interesting cast of characters, you might say, for this particular drama. Um, yeah, I guess, so just on, on the, the point about Bolsonaro, I mean, I, I think it's, it's the way the, um, the uh, Slate like um, article sort of frames it, is Chile's presidential election is is scary and familiar. So that's not actually the title that ends up in the on the, mm. the article, but that's the the one if you if you send it as a link. And it's a bit too. I mean, it's obviously reading the the kind of the Trump and Bolsonaro context into this really heavily. Um, and it's pretty. I think that the, the basic point of this article is is like here's a choice for 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 people in Chile to to choose correctly and be celebrated by us or choose poorly. And we will, we will, we will be able to judge you. And it even says it quite explicitly. This is shaping up in short to be a referendum on how Ch- Chileans. I don't know if you you can pronounce it as Chileans if you're if you're British English, but yeah, uh, wish to respond more morally and politically to crisis with major backlash or with major reform. So yeah, it's, I mean it's a moral a moral framing, and we've seen. We've seen this, and it doesn't really work out all that well. This I, I think there is that. Moral I, I think there is. No, I agree with George. I mean, I think um, the moral framing is very telling, though, you know, then again, it's slight. What do we expect? Um, and the framing, you know, like the putting cast in the same um, frame as Bolsonaro and then Bolsonaro and Trump. And as we know, I mean, we were told this very explicitly by um, some guy, I can't remember his name now, that Trump and Bolsonaro are actually very different political characters and so forth. They shouldn't be assimilated together. Hi. I mean, so <laughs> the point being that it's, um, you know, I mean, look, I mean, it's difficult, I think, essentially. And I don't, I'm not suggesting there's an obvious answer because obviously these, I think it is useful to connect global politics in, you know, the turbulence you see in different countries together. There's even a very ways. good podcast that often does that. So It's true. Yeah, there are. Maybe there's one podcast that does it occasionally, or at least one of, I mean, I think, you know, I have a favorite on the podcast. But anyway, that asides, um, it's framing is really hard. Um, kind of assimilating it into these simplistic narratives. Oh, you know, Boric is like Sanders, Bernie Sanders, and um, uh, cast is Trump is... Uh, He's too easy to do, too simplistic. On the other hand, you don't want to simply make it completely specific to Chile. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's always a trick to try to figure out exactly what is particular and what's universal in the in the sort of story. Um, Tell us about your tricks. How do you do it? How'd well, exactly. The, 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 the one simple the dialectical trick <laughs> allows you to separate the uh, universal from the particular. There's no... Yeah. There's, that's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no... 
it's not a trick. It's just a trick. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think what, Thanks, what, what there is that's kind of universal in the story is the breakdown of the establishment, the kind of breaking apart of the, the neoliberal order. I think that we can say, yeah, these are things that are happening in various different ways in Brazil, Chile, or in the US, right? Um, but I think the comparison, for example, of caste with Bolsonaro is more apt just because if we're sticking with Latin America, you know, comparisons between the countries are far more appropriate in terms of looking at their social structure and their histories than it is comparing to the United States or to Western Europe. So um, I, I don't think the Bolsonaro comparison is totally wide of the mark. Um, but what's interesting- So you're, and, you're, arguing, you're arguing for Latin American particularism as our Latin American mm, correspondent mm, on this podcast, that we can't it, understand it. We can't it's a, possibly it's get a general, these, It's a general particular instantiation of a universal trend. <laughs> yeah. Um, Good but, line. But, but what I think is important here is to understand uh, Chile's recent history. And if you'll allow me, I guess, a little bit to, to kind of put this in a bit of context, it's important. And in a way, allow it, allow it. more important than as long uh, as you don't, as long as you itself. don't mention, as long as you don't mention the other 9-11, you will be allowed to talk about this. <laughs> no, we're going to, we're going to start our narrative in 1990 uh, after at the end of the dictatorship. So through this whole period, you have this duopoly of the center-left concertacion, uh, which had the Socialist Party, as well as the kind of more left-leaning Christian Democrats involved anyway, and the right. And actually, that whole the whole period is actually uh, dominated more by the center-left than the right, but it's entirely a party of the neoliberal establishment. Basically, its line on the dictatorship is, you know, they got the economics right, but uh, the repression was too heavy. You know, that's kind of their approach to Chile's uh, history, to Pinochet, and so on. Um, but and, and Chile, you know, it's a member of the OECD. It's kind of the neoliberalism that worked in Latin America, right? It, its GDP grew throughout the 2000s. You know, you had growth rates of 5%, 8 9%, uh, a lot dependent on exporting copper, like 50 60% of its exports are copper. Um, but this, that, that sort of story of success conceals the fact of really deep inequality, the, the deepest inequality in the OECD, and a very neoliberalized society, right? So a l huge amount of privatization, uh, education is treated very much as a commodity, uh, you know, the freedom of education instead of a right to education, a voucher system, which is like pure, like straight out of a kind of neoliberal handbook, um, and a whole range of other kind of uh, typically neoliberal uh, modes of governance like central bank autonomy, um, a constitutional court which can annul laws passed in parliament, uh, really strong anti-labor laws and stuff like that. Um, and so in this context uh, of growing delegitimation of the state, you had something like 40% turnout in the 2017 election, right? Uh, and this came on the back of a big student uprising in 2011. So again, it's interesting here just to draw some parallels. We always talk about the sort of the end of the end of history and these uprisings after the global financial crisis. 2011 is kind of Chile's moment there, except that there it's not really on the back of an economic crisis because Chile's doing well kind of in economically, but it's a part of a broader delegitimation. But what, what the real big moment is, is this 2019 uprising, which led to uh, the creation of this constitutional convention to rewrite the constitution. And in some ways, you could even argue that the at the time it was the center-right Pineda government in, in charge, that they acceded to that demand as a way of demobilizing the situation, because it actually could have led to complete overthrow of the regime, such was the, the level of, of street mobilizations. So it's a really big deal, and, and Chile, I, I think, really presents... You know, if you want to look at the kind of crisis of neoliberalism, China, China, excuse me, Chile is like a, a really great story. If you just look at its the history of the past kind of 30 years there um, and the left has had lots of successes, 80 percent or something like that voted in favor of overturning the Constitution. And then in the elections to the Constitutional Assembly, those people who will rewrite the Constitution, the left, and that's in the broadest possible sense, won something like two thirds of the positions. So that's like the formal left, as well as indigenous movements feminists and so on, right? Um, and then caste comes in and wins, you know, the first round, right? Not an outright majority, but but he he wins a plurality of votes. And that's interesting. And so the article even asks, you know, is this a backlash, right, against that? And that's a, that's a real question. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so one not so serious point and one serious point. The not so serious point is, did you know that the band cast, the lead singer was called John Power, Said so there's already a link between uh, power and, and cast. Um, that's just because I've had incredibly that's... niche and irrelevant. Listen to the song. So walk away. Just it's been in my head. 
as I was as I was as I was reading this. Um, and yeah, I think I think that the more serious point, and I, you know, that was a very you know very useful summary, um, definitely, is that yeah, this is one of the the stories of this election <clears throat> is that the you know. Sebastian Sickle, this kind of um, centre-right, like standard um, ruling yeah, who, class, Pineda's successor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's like the the standard guy. He's like the you know the easy easy choice. Um, yeah, his he's. Why is it that his that the <clears throat> I guess the the kind of the regime or the um, the society, the political order to which he he is um, associated or with which he is associated. It is not seen by voters to give um, to give a plausible solution to to the contemporary problems faced by Chile, and it's, I guess it's a combination of of obviously COVID and just probably this individual candidate's specific um, failings. But yeah, I mean this is this is part of that that story. What is the what is the situation that allows this kind of um, and the ability to to put this this frame around a kind of quote unquote far right candidate, and then a I mean, I think a, he is. I think he is far right. I don't think there is any quote unquote about it. I um, think I'm I'm really skeptical of this idea of far right. Like far right means like fascist, right? It's, it's just a not necessarily of fascist. No, not necessarily. You can have non well. Non-fascist what, what do you mean? Right. I don't think he's. I don't think right. he's a fa- I don't think he's a fascist, but he holds to an extreme neoliberal position of. You know, privatization of, of and also just a defense of the Pinochet inspired order. So basically, to continue governing over the type of society that Pinochet created over the, you know, effectively over the over the graves of all those who who were defeated. But what you does know? it mean? But what does it mean to say you know neoliberal? I mean, and far right. Well, okay. I mean, you know, I I don't want to, I I don't want to. Yeah, I'm not going to die on the hill of calling him far right. I don't. I think that's appropriate. But I don't. You know, I think it's. You get into kind of definitional uh, debates, kind of saying that. But the point is that he's an extremely conservative candidate, right? He because you because you have this moment where they're rewriting the you've constitution. Played this, you've played this totally wrong, Alex. You're meant to respond by calling George a red branch, that's the right, <laughs> and then the conversation. Ends. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, but you know, you basically have the overturning of the old order done over the mass mobilization, huge protests, right, which shook shook Chile, and you have. The certainly the traditional establishment and the backers of the establishment in the middle class abandoning their center right candidate in favor of a more hardline figure promising a return yeah. to order. So yeah, there's, a mean, the, the, there's a fear of disorder. There's a fear of disorder which no, motivates sure, yeah. it. So, no, but I mean, so I suppose this is the I suppose this is the interesting takeaway point for me is the fragility of the neoliberal kind of social structure and political order exposed repeatedly and perhaps it gives us a sense of what that looks like when it crumbles how rapidly it crumbles away and i think perhaps you know we see the same the inability to put anything in its place with the result that you have this um turbulence i mean if your reading is right alex then basically what they seem to have done is they gave the constitutional convention as a way to avoid or as a way to channel and manage i suppose what happened in sigtagma square in greece when you had the movement, the so-called movement of the squares in Europe, where you had these um, enormous mass mobilizations, particularly in Spain and Greece, um, and that refused to engage with existing political party structures that define themselves against them, and that led to the formation of new parties eventually, but that never really, you know, haven't really gone anywhere. And so, you know, I expect it'll be similar in um, similar in Chile. There is yeah. no way to, we have no means of substituting the old, something new for the old order, which is to say the neoliberal order. And like you say, I imagine that does mean once it collapses that many, um, you know, many layers of the middle classes, fearful for stability, will um, will probably reach out to, will, you know, respond in unpredictable ways and perhaps reach out to um, more kind of uh, creepier and more ghoulish figures who play, who kind of combine these different strands of um, flirting with, flirting with kind of fascist ideas, invoking old no, military I, regimes, and I so don't, on. I don't think it's flirting with fascist ideas. That I mean, that, that would be my my kind of criticism of this framing. That it's not far right; it's just not centre right. There is them. If you're talking about a, a spectrum, well, take, then it's take, not it's not take, the same thing. It's like so take Eric, take Eric Zemmour, take Eric Zemmour in France, right? So he's not a fascist, right? But he rehabilitates the Vichy regime, 
right? He explicitly yeah. downplays the crimes of the Vichy regime, right? Um, so I mean, and, 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 and cast and cast and cast, and this is interesting because some of the left. I, I read an interview with the, I think this was Rene Rojas in, in in Jackman, but saying that some people on the left in, in Chile are actually kind of happy to see cast because he it's kind of an unmasking of the Chilean right. So they the Chilean right played nice while you had this kind of completely constrained political order between you know this nice alternation between center left and center right and other things have become more turbulent it's kind of like a bit of a masks off moment for the chilean upper middle classes who just go yeah we're gonna go back to mm -hmm. someone who more nakedly su supports the the pinochet dictatorship and you know bolsonaro as well actively trying to rehabilitate the military's role in politics actively trying to basically say torture is a good thing and we should do more of it um, and so even if they don't act on it, and I, I don't think that they're fascists or that, that the fascists are taking power. You know, we've, I've made this point loads of times. We've discussed this loads on the pod, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that there aren't kind of, yeah, they're playing with sort of fascist ideas. I, I don't think I don't think Phil's out of line in saying that. I think I'm also not, I'm, not I would, sure. I would, I'm not sure. I also there are lots of people in the UK who would defend Thatcher. I mean, but that's totally different. But Thatcher, but Thatcher was not a military a dictatorship. <laughs> that that's the difference. I don't think that's where you cannot make the comparison between kind of right wing populists in you know the UK there's or the US and Latin America things where you have recent dictatorship. Military dictatorship and constitutional government is is yeah? there? No, yeah. I did. I do know that there were there were oh. you know fewer helicopters. Um, anyway, should, should we, but, should we, should we, should we, um, we can, no, I, do have back a I do have on. a serious, I do have a serious point that like, this is part of the moral framing. I mean, it, it is a, there is an incentive here to push this, like, you know, the, I mean, that there are, I mean, obviously I'm not going to deny that there are conservative elements, but it is important that I would, as far as I understand this, see cast as a conservative, not as somebody who's trying to reform society in a reactionary, um, and, and by reactionary, I going back to before the French Revolution or um, a no, fascist. I but no one's doing that nowadays. Way. No one's wanting to go back before the French well, Revolution. Then, I mean, that's, what maybe I would there's say, no far, then there's no far what right. Would, would what I would point. say is, um, I'm not sure, I don't think I'd go that far, George. But what I would say is the, well, I maybe think you should go it's that a mistake. Far. You should it's have a some mistake. boldness in your opinions. It's a mistake. It's a mistake on the part of the left to welcome this idea of the um, taking off of the mask. This makes our task easier. I, it no, kind I don't of think clarifies. It, yeah. I mean, all of that I think is um, you know deeply naive. Um, not least because given the weakness of the left and its inability to present anything kind of meaningful or legitimate, and their inability to reach out to the population at large. You know, there. And I'm I'm sure you know this is a global problem and not just a um, not just a kind of one that is particular to Anglo-American woke kind of activists, but a more a broader problem. There is nothing to offer. And in those situations, um, fear, the fearful middle classes will, you know, they will obviously flock to somebody like Cast. Yeah, I, I think that I agree with that. I think that there we can obviously reject the moralistic framing, the exaggerations and the sort of fascism blackmail that the left does, while also recognizing that he is far right. So just viewing things through the prism of this sort of leftist discourse that we might disagree with doesn't mean that you can't then look at what is actually happening and go, okay, well, look, this is this is a very reactionary figure. Uh, Phil, one final point, and then we're going to move on. It just makes me, it takes me back to Syriza. Um, and I just, particularly the episode that we did with um, Jonas Christazes, because what he emphasized there was the... Um, enormous popular backing that Syriza had when they confronted the European Union and when they mobilized the population for the referendum, after which they surrendered and folded to the European Union. But what was striking was that, you know, they were the own, they were seen to be the only party that was capable of standing for um, popular interests in Greece and for the Greek po population as a whole in its standoff with the Austerians of the European Union. And so they had enormous support, including from traditional nationalists, um, traditional conservatives, all figure, you know, there was tremendous mobilization behind Syriza. And so it's only to say that Syriza had what so many of these left-wing um, post-neoliberal formations lack. It had enormous national and popular legitimacy, and it squandered it. And so it just, I mean, it reinforces to my mind what a world historic catastrophe Syriza's surrender to the European Union really was for um, a new, for the kind of era of post-neoliberal politics or post-crisis politics, however you want to call it, before George mm. sets off again. No, no, I was just uh, 
that's a good point. I, I, I agree. And I think um, Jonas put that, yeah, <laughs> captured some of that um, in, in the episode. Yeah, good. I was actually just about to say, good point. Um, interesting. It's good to congratulate each other. Uh, what are we moving on to next? Are we doing uh, India or are we doing uh, COVID protests in continental Europe? I think it's time for, for um, to, to move from Latin America to the Indian subcontinent. So, in fact, the next um, article is in the paper of record, everyone's favourite, the New York Times. Yay. Um, so this uh, <clears throat> article um, by a, a team of reporters, inc- including Emily Schmall, uh, Karen Deep Singh and uh, Samir Yasser, is titled, in a rare, in rare show of weakness, Modi bows to India's farmers. A bungled response to COVID and a struggling economy, South NYT framing it, have hurt his party standing, leaving it vulnerable to a well-organized protest movement. And essentially, this is a, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of a summary of some of the uh, recent um, backpedaling um, by Modi's government, which the, the headline, in case listeners haven't, sort of heard about this story is um, that the farmers who've been protesting for over a year, disrupting traffic in in Delhi, um, you know, with several casualties and and a variety of clashes with with police and and the state um, have managed to secure from from Modi, who's who obviously presents himself as a bit of a, you know, a a strong man figure um, backing down on these farm laws. And we can talk a little bit more about the context of what these these are, but they basically relate to to subsidies and the role of corporations in farming, which are obviously extremely important in a um, still widely agricultural society um, such as as India and the NYT. As it as it uh, often does, gives you a, a, a TLDR version, which I can uh, crib from in just setting this up for everybody. Um, yeah, so after a year of protests by farmers, um, Modi conceded to their demands on the nineteenth of November, agreeing to repeal farm laws that his government had enacted that were very unpopular with farmers. And the way they they um, <clears throat> frame this is like a show of weakness, Modi dominated Indian politics for seven years. The decision to repeal the laws was a rare retreat for the leader. The cause of the protests, farmers feared that Modi's farm laws, which he had hastily introduced in 2020, would send crop prices plunging. The core issue. At the heart of the dispute lies a subsidy system that the government, economists, and even many farmers agree is broken, seeking attention. Frustrated at at Modi's intransigence after months of protests, farmers aimed to make their grievances difficult to ignore. So, I mean, there's obviously a lot more to it than than that but and we can probably dig into the context a bit but yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a climb down over a, an important economic issue by um by modi and which you also yeah go on well i've got a question a, a very digressionary question can we really talk about a strong man like maybe he's not a strong man like maybe that's the wrong language to use like maybe the framing is bad maybe he's not a strong man at is he all. a henchman a strong, um, a strong man, inappropriate language to use. Maybe maybe he's not, he's a, not a man. Maybe he identifies as something else. I don't he's a strong know. person. Is that what you're saying we should call him? I'm just saying, like, you know, there are definitional terms, and I think we sh- maybe shouldn't take this kind of liberal language of strong man as forgiven <laughs> for people like me. What would, you, what would you suggest then? He's obviously taking the piss out of you, George. <laughs> I'm responding seriously because I'm I'm I seek political discussion and clarification through through um the clash of ideas. So yeah, what would you suggest instead of a, a strong man? Um, I'm happy to go with strong man for Modi, so it's it's fine. It was just oh type. cool, thanks, thanks, thanks for that. Um, You're that welcome. Now you see, yeah, exactly, yeah, that's right. So that's the sort of intervention that I would make and then be criticised for. Um, anyhow, so yeah, so that's that's the um um the basic the headline it's useless i mean it's so typically useless journalism i have to say like from the new york times so in wealth i mean okay, i'm a little qualified so it gives you like you know kind of the superficial reading of the fact that there obviously has been a climb down it talks to some people it gets some views blah 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 it gives you the um the fact that the modi you know modi is losing popularity in king in key states in advance of future elections they need to win but in terms of the actual substance of the dispute um, the detail of exactly what the agricultural reforms would have done, 
um, how they would alter the character of or the position of particular farmers, particularly in a country as kind of vast and whose agricultural sector is so diverse and complex as, as India's is, all of that is lacking. Um, despite the fact that they clearly have reporters on the ground, you know, and so it's just striking um, how superficial um, Why some are you of the stuff is. With those matters of detail, this is this is providing uh, a hit of news to the busy business person. Like these are these are not even details, the business surely. person. I don't think <laughs> no person who uh, has no business to attend to and is able. Why to should leave we the say? NYT can we really confidently say business person though? Anyway, but let's not get sidetracked. I mean, I don't know if we have anything more to bring on the mobilizations that happened last year, but it was interesting because I saw a lot of people going, why is no one talking about this? Right. Cause they were yeah, masses and masses yeah, of yeah. people, but, <laughs> but yeah. you get to that stage in the kind of social media cycle where you have more people saying, why is no one talking about this than there are people actually not talking about it. Um, but it, it was, it was a remarkable show of militancy from, from those farmers in, in taking down this system. And the, I think the reform to the laws, I, I mean, I don't have any insight specifically into agricultural politics or the kind of economics of this, um, though I, I, I did actually. That's not true, Alex. You stand for the entirety of the global south on this podcast. The, the, the Amazonian, yes, the, the Amazonian like Amazonian <laughs> tribes. Yeah, the Amazonian <laughs> indigenous tribes. But they're not. A, they're not the like campesinos a, of Chile. The indigenous peoples it all. of you're, Chile. But the farmers they're, they're of copper India. miners. No, you speak, you're getting it all confused. You're getting all you confused. Speak anyway. for all of them. It's your job to educate him, Alex. As we know, the a lot of the you know the the, the formerly uh, the, the the formerly called uh, third world is now in large part not agrarian, and it's the megalopolises and uh, the the peripheries of big cities where uh, where the, uh, the where you draw your from. support from. Speak, yes, Speak me, on me specifically. No, but what is interesting, and I, I actually have to say, I mean, I translated a report on on this, um, which I found kind of interesting. I wasn't aware of it, but the the incursion of uh, fintechs. Uh, and kind of big tech in general into agriculture, which I wasn't aware of, right? So there's all sorts of new apps that allow farmers to um, kind of, you know, supposedly share information, uh, but also these, them to kind of the, you know, kind of biotech firms to sell seeds and so on. And so these, uh, it's kind of the incursion of big tech into this would have been facilitated by the uh, by these laws which weaken the state's role in buying up and guaranteeing prices so it's effectively you know a kind of form of marketization um and so the the farmers protest was a way of really trying to scrap these laws and to maintain some form of state regulation which i'm sure is wholly inadequate in india, in india but it's better than the proposed marketization which probably would have seen you know, many farmers go out of business, commit suicide, etc., um, lose their lands, and so on. Here, I um, here I'm going to do a George and say I'm genuinely on. You know, I would genuinely not know or be very confident in jumping one way or the other, without knowing more about the you know the detail and probably the vast kind of geographic differences, different layers of the rural population, the class structure of um, the Indian population, which will also vary in different parts of the country, you know, in wealthier and poorer parts of the um, of uh, India's agricultural hinterland. All of this makes, it seems to me very difficult to draw kind of any um, decisive or clear conclusion as to if it's a clean, you know, if it's just a clean standoff between predatory multinationals and indigent farmers. That's not, I'm not, um, that's not. No, probably not. I'm sure I would suspect that there's lots of kind of big interests who want to maintain the state's kind of monopsony power, you know, role there in, in buying yeah. up commodities. I, I'm not saying that's why I'm saying it's not perfect, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Did you say monopsony? Monopsony. Monopsony. Oh, I thought. Yeah, I was like, "Is have I missed a theoretical term? Monopoly, monopsony, monopsony." I mean, <laughs> that could be. What some, is what is monopsony? Uh, I don't know. Like state, uh, state is the only provider of oxygen. <laughs> anyway. Um, if we if we don't want if we can't talk about the the the, the kind of uh, economic infrastructure behind this, I mean, what's George? What's your reading of of the kind of political consequences of this for Modi? Well, we're <clears throat> we're going to see there's going to be an election in um, Uttar Pradesh um, coming up, which is um, a bellwether, or supposedly that's the way it's presented, a kind of bellwether uh, election. I mean, I guess the 
I'm I'm not a a, a, a political um, um, analyst. What is it? Really? The, what Nate a commentator? Silver. Oh, right, no, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think what what what, what I'm not. I'm not going to give uh, statistical odds, um, but yeah, I mean, as 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 kind of we we discussed or, or Phil's not terribly helpful intervention at the, at the top um, did did <clears throat> kind of uh, point to is that that Modi's like part of his his appeal is his um, his 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 strength, uh, or you could put it another another way. But there's a certainly like there is a question about like what is the um what is the consequence of this kind of uncharacteristic um signaling of like making making a mistake um you know not being able to convince i mean this is the way that the the agriculture minister puts it not being able to convince some farmers of the benefit of this uh, reform which i think is you know you have to assume is 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 pretty counter to their to their interests and it's i don't think it's when you hear that fintech is is going to be involved I mean that's a pretty clear sign that it's not going to be in in the interest of agricultural workers or small producers um, without knowing the the full kind of political economy. So yeah, I mean there is a question about what this means for the BJP, which is um, is Modi's Modi's party. So I mean because they have been you know pretty dominant and do face a, a divided opposition. Well, and, and, so and, 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 I mean that's that's one of the questions I guess whether this is a single issue. Um, uh, kind of which which then gets catalyzed and, and organized but it doesn't really seem like it goes you know what what are the natures of the of the of the state reforms um of the reforms to the current state inadequate purchasing system yeah it's not it's not clear i mean there is one thing in the liberal perception of india outside and, and probably maybe in it as well is that you know the b the bjp represents this complete marked departure away from kind of secular universalism right? Is it far right? and uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, this kind of far right reorganization of Indian society. And no doubt there's a lot of reactionary things there in kind of in Hindu nationalism, but uh, we have a great episode. How far, actually, How far point... right is it? Well, yeah. Is uh, it too far? Not, not falling off the, the table, right? but like it's teetering on the edge. Um, it just takes a cat to come along and give it a little push. Um, Ooh, I, I'll tell you what, have you, did you ever read the far side? Uh, comics by Gary Larson. Yes, it, it, it give you a chuckle. I mean, that's that's not far right. <laughs> that's just far side, far out. Sorry. Jesus. Anyway, but the point is that uh, anyway, episode one nine eight, Universal India with Achan Vanaik. I had a great conversation with him. I thought Achan was uh, hugely illuminating as to these issues and the way that effectively. Gandhi, Nehru, and the Congress Party held up as sort of liberal secularists really laid the seeds for today's Hindu chauvinism. And so it doesn't really mark, it represents such a marked departure. Uh, and also, I think, and, and you know, that this kind of rollback that Modi's had to carry out and, you know, even apologize for trying to bring in these policies uh, shows that, you know, it's not also stable. And I think maybe here if we want to do a kind of general reading or, you know, kind of make a point about kind of right populists in general is that however much they promise, one, either to bring order or alternatively to represent some sort of break with the old establishment, they're not able to establish anything particularly long lasting and, and to a large extent run on fumes, right? They run on fumes in terms of like, my God, pure ideology, in terms of constantly inflaming these conflicts or pursuing sort of diversionary things, yeah. creating culture wars and so on, because they're unable to really materially um, structure a new sort of order. I would I would extend that they run on fumes like a hot air balloon, and so we're pushed by the the political winds of the day. I mean, if you if if you'll allow me that, because the, the fumes is is the hot air in the hot air balloon, and but and, but, but no, but so, to, to take your stupid to take your stupid metaphor to take your stupid metaphor, I'm not sure they not. blow with the wind. I think that's something which to reference another article, another episode we did with Lily Lynch on uh, on Serbia. You know, uh, the Serbian strong man. Um, whose name I've now forgotten and Phil's going to tell me. Vucic. Vucic uh, is someone who there very much is very malleable and adapts and tries to incorporate all these various different positions, which is a little bit different to someone like Modi who pursues a, a, maybe a clearer ideological line. But the point is that so, I'm not sure it's able to, to mm. uh, root anything long lasting. So so what you're saying is that the, is today's strongman has kind of gone from the like the, the 90s noughties like strength of weightlifting to a more kind of yoga flexibility so the real That's strength the, is now in you're core, just playing with core strength but flexibility outside of the core 
you're just playing with uh, with cliches about India and uh, although the India did have a strong bodybuilding culture as well, it is, which was kind of quasi fascist actually. But uh, but there, I did want to I did want fascist to you today. I did want to make a point about kind of populist rhetoric and self presentation, and I think and like I'm just trying this out, but. There's a there's a tendency, and you know, you can think of maybe Modi, but you can think of various populists in the West represent in some ways a breaking of technocratic managerial taboos, right? We're just gonna do something. Whereas before they said, Oh, we, we might limit immigration a little bit, but we have these complex mechanisms of calculating exactly the right number of immigrants, and populists come in, let's just do it, let's just shut down the borders, right? That's just to take the most cliched, obvious example, but it, it plays across the board. It's a kind of attempt to reclaim authority from this very diffuse form of authority that you have over the kind of end of history period, right? We're just going to come in and fucking do stuff rather than saying, you know, hey, what we we actually have to put this through the processes and consult with the NGO, with the Quangos who will regulate this and blah, 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 all that crap. Let's just fucking do it, right? I think there's a liberal version of this or even left liberal version of this, even with COVID, maybe to foreshadow what we're going to talk about, but with COVID where there's also this element of like, fuck it, just vaccinate everyone, force vaccinate everyone, or fuck it, just lock down everyone, which has its own um, sort of like libidinal thrill there in saying, no, we don't have to measure things anymore. We don't have to balance. We don't have to find consensus or whatever. Just fucking do it. And this is the world in crisis today, right? The, the, the effect of crisis means that we can't rely on the processes and consensus and the consultations and the blah, 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 blah. We just want to fucking do it. And so the liberal version is authoritarian. The right wing version is also authoritarian, but they both provide some sort sense of satisfaction, I think, both to by, for the practitioners, but also for the audience hearing it um, and to whom it appeals to say, hey, why don't why don't we just lock everyone down and, and stop the disease entirely instead of being like, oh, but we have to measure this up against certain liberal rights and blah, blah, blah. And maybe the correct measure is a little bit of lockdown, but not so much. Or maybe we should just encourage people to get vaccinated. But, you know, just through messaging. No, just fucking do it. I think I think there's yeah, a, a, a sort of similarity there. Yeah, there's a sort of libidinal naughty being good, like the like oh just it's, it's naughty not to do to do what the technocratic like to to have exactly the precisely the right number of people vaccinated or, or the right number of, of of immigrants but but it's kind of you're offsetting that by by doing the the morally good thing so you can be you can be a little bit kind of crude a little bit fuck it just do it but you can be safe in the knowledge that you're you're just doing the um the good thing you might be doing too much of a good thing but you can't have too much of a good thing now there's something in that that kind of the license that you can give yourself to break the rules if the direction in which you're breaking the rules is the uh, good one. But everyone believes that they're doing the good thing. I mean, you know, the, the people who are saying let's limit it, let's stop immigration entirely are also saying we're doing the good thing to preserve our, you know, pure or, you know, consensus society. Yeah, but the, but, but the left, the left liberals just have more of that. <laughs> that yeah, they have more of the self, yeah, yeah. The, the, the right are more okay being evil, whereas the right are like, Whereas the left are like, no, we're we're going to do evil, but we're going to pretend we're good, etc. Um, is that should that should that be a moment that we move on to the next one, Phil? Probably, Hello. probably. Okay, so go ahead. So um, the piece is called, the title is Violence in Belgium and Netherlands as COVID protests erupt across Europe, though it covers um, protests in Austria, Switzerland, Italy, Denmark and Croatia, and also further afield in Guadeloupe, which is um, a French overseas territory and is therefore um, run as part of metropolitan France. It is and it is in The Guardian, um, published Sunday, the 21st of November by John Henley. So Alex asked earlier this, um, you know, about the Indian farm protest that for a while people were kind of saying, why is no one talking about this, given the scale of the and um, intensity of the protests? And the same thing could be said of these COVID protests. Finally, there is some um, recognition in a major, you know, liberal leading liberal newspaper, just of the scale of um, anti-lockdown, anti-vax mandate protests that are now gathering force. Um, and what is omitted, as far as I can tell from having, when I read this piece, um, what's omitted is that these protests were coordinated and they were deliberately coordinated across these various countries as part of the um, effort to resist the government crackdown 
or government crackdowns, an attempt again to impose lockdowns of various kinds across these countries in response to the fourth wave. So a few take home points, I think, from this one. Um, the first is that the I mean, it is genuinely surprising the um, uh, size of the protests and also the intensity of the violence. I mean, if we consider the places where it's taking place, I mean, you know, it's seeing uh, reading about how cops in the Netherlands are firing bullets at crowds and protesters isn't something you normally read about in the press. You know, you expect to see those lines written about other places. The other thing is um, the extent of the diversity of the groups involved so the reporter mentions the fact that um one of them one of the crowds um in this case in belgium was singing the old anti-fascist partisan song bella ciao um, together for freedom and then but also in the crowd there are far-right insignia if we may say that george with apologies to george as well as um the gay rainbow flags um and this so i think the and this has certainly been my experience of um, the uh, anti-lockdown protests when I've seen them, is just the sheer enormous variety. And so that seems to me to ring true um, and to be important recognition of a fact. So um, the other, I suppose, the other take home point would be just how much the scale of these protests in response to or in response to the response to the fourth wave I think it's also important to indicate just how much this delegitimizes the common narratives, um, which is generally that, um, you know, the, Britain is the kind of um, the failure, the um, quasi-genocidal experiment gone awry, whereas the European Union, after kind of a difficult start with vaccination, has recovered. Um, whereas now the fourth, you know, the fourth COVID wave going through, going through Europe is also, again, kind of um, sending... Um, case rates and infections rocketing in all sorts of unexpected and unpredictable ways that don't seem to easily align up with um, what might be predicted by rates of vaccination and previous restrictions. So all of that is again to say that it de the level of social protest delegitimizes the narratives that both governments and major media organizations have tried to impose on events. And perhaps finally, some of this is getting recognition in the press. Isn't it just the well, randomness, actually? I mean, more than I know you're saying that it's not the kind of Britain versus EU thing, but that actually how random it has been the whole way through, both in terms of which yeah, countries would suffer worse, that. which measures actually don't correlate, you know, strong measures don't correlate with less infections. It's, you know, that it, it seems to be all over the place. Yeah. No, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean, and you said it's getting recognition in the press. I mean, the Guardian, you can limited, use, use, use the word newspaper or press in, in inverted commas. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Scare quotes. I mean, just, just a couple of things to, to pick up on the way this has been reported. Um, the Rotterdam mayor described an, an orgy of violence. The um, Guardian piece itself talks about rioting youths. Um, the whole thing is pretty pearl clutching, pretty like... Um, like oh my goodness what are all these these idiots doing like well, why an orgy being... of violence suggests that it's you know just self-satisfying right that you're getting you're well that getting would off. be in well yeah, that would be no, masturbatory no, yes. no but no but no five police officers injured and 40 people arrested in the netherlands right um and those you know that seems to me kind of quite um striking figures yeah, but we know we know, what, we know what police we know what police injuries actually in mean it's like someone like broke a nail and then it's like well they lost a finger you know how these no okay go. but, but the, all of those the point is all of those no but all of those things are are, you know, all things being equal, those, like I say, seeing those kinds of headlines and figures about protests in places like the Netherlands and perhaps Belgium, you know, to a lesser so, extent. Sorry, I've got, I've just got to jump in here. You're, you, it seems like you're kind of, you're, you're weighing the, the arrests or like the Dutch protests, like in places like the Netherlands, like these Dutch people, they're so, they're so dis nice and chilled out like they that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that, that it's generally obviously i'm not saying that i'm saying you know what i don't think is unreasonable that generally we don't hear about violent protests in the netherlands or um very intense kind of um or intense civil unrest whereas this seems to be there does seem to be a genuine well you know wellspring of popular anger against covid restrictions in the netherlands which no, was I mean, unexpected i was, I was being, at least from I was my being point facetious of view. because if you really if you go really to the Hague, it's um yeah it, it isn't the place that you're expecting the barricades uh to be to be formed and the the molotov cocktails to be um to be hurled i mean i, I would make a, i would make a couple of points there one is one is this like general trend towards the militarization of social relations which um 
um, you, you could say COVID is a part of this idea that essentially like there, there isn't, um, there's a, you move from the kind of increasing monitoring of people's um, interpersonal relation, uh, like interactions um, to a pretty, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously wasn't at these, these protests across, across Europe, but you can imagine that the response is pretty preemptively militarized that it does um actually it's not the, the the guardian piece but there are other other pieces which are kind of i guess outlining the potential for bringing in um like various sorts of, of riot cops and um elite tactical forces across across the continent so i guess there's a kind of as much as it definitely does um upset the the, narr- the kind of mainstream narrative of that you were talking about phil there's also you know, like here, there's a there's a definite um, coercive arm of the, the state being being readied if if the um, response continues to 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 develop in the way that it has to, that, to that, the quote unquote force. I think that's what's interesting in the piece is no, but that's what's interesting in the piece is um, that the hardest language, at least in this report, is reserved for Guadeloupe, right? The French interior minister yeah. said, the quote is, the first message is the state will stand firm. Reinforcements are being sent, including the so-called raid. Elite tactical forces of the gendarmerie are being added to the territory, um, increasing the numbers on the territory Guadeloupe 2,250, um, which I'm presuming is a lot per head of population in, in Guadeloupe. So, but, but, I mean, but that it's also that the French, but, but it's also, I think, even even in metropolitan France, we know that you know, the French no, sure, uh, CRS course, yeah. and everything are particularly hardcore and heavy-handed. Um, I mean, I don't think it's militarization of social relations to roll back to what George said. I mean, it's a militarized confrontation now and repression, but I don't know if it's militarized social relations in terms of how that, because that would suggest that there's a kind of hierarchy. I'm sure it's militarized, but they're not, they've not, the army isn't on the streets. It's, you know, riot, riot police and cops. I think the Edelman that is new is the fact over what people are protesting and linked to particular surveillance technologies. I mean, the protesters in France are mobilizing against the health pass, which um, as the report makes clear, so since the summer, this summer, you've needed this um, health pass to access restaurants, cafes, cinemas, theatres, exercise in gyms, attend sporting events, taking planes or long distance trains. An enormous way the social life has so been... all optional things, that's what you're saying. Exactly, things exactly. That, things that you could live luxuries, without. Luxuries, luxuries, essentially. What a luxury. Yeah, well, which is the, you know, the critique all along, right? That it's uh, the COVID restrictions are about reducing things to bare life. What interests me about this story, because I remember, I think it was on, was it on Friday night, I think, that uh, that the that the protests in the Netherlands erupted. But it was a remarkable sort of simultaneity of these things. So you had the Netherlands, then you had, I think, just preceding that, the protests in Austria. I don't know if we've even spoken about uh, the I said Austrian, they were yeah. planned to be coordinated, as far as I understand. So it was oh, deliberately... Yeah? Okay. Yeah, they were, which isn't mentioned in the piece. It's all, they it's were all, it's intended to be um, coordinated, and they cover um, at least two countries in which Alex has citizenship, um, indicating your <laughs> de- your cosmopolitan background. So not only can you speak to the global south, you can also speak to two of these countries. Yeah, those, those anti-Semitic cartoons of the puppet master—that's that's just me. <laughs> um, um, but I, th- I think it's yeah, I think it's also interesting what you mentioned in your introduction, Phil, about the kind of totally mixed bag of political symbols and the sort of people that you find on these protests. Because yeah. I think they, you know, they obviously this crystallizes and the question of vaccinations and of lockdowns crystallizes so much so mistrust of of, uh, of the state, of the establishment, and of uh, just general anger and disgruntlement with the way things, uh, the, the way things have gone. And I mean, I, I remember on the kind of anti-lockdown protests that I went to in London that it was kind of there was a lot of wackiness there as well you know kind of a lot of just sort of anti kind of the, the usual kind of yeah slightly hippie sort of anti-vax stuff as well as people who were just there just because they didn't like the lockdown restrictions and it it, it but i think yeah, the further the, 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 hang on let me let me just let me just finish this point though because what ends up happening is a kind of retrospective construction of legitimacy for this okay so what do i mean by that it's that a bit, or let me take an analogy, right? That I think we know all a lot know a lot of people who were who weren't necessarily pro Brexit and might have even voted to remain. But as things who are these people? as things we know no we know people like this. Um, we know many people like that that who after the vote happened and in the ensuing months when there was this huge Romanian backlash and it became apparent that the establishment was going to do everything that it could to uh, avoid seeing through Brexit. 
that it that for a lot of people Brexit then became justified and it became pro Brexit on the back of the fact that they the, the fact that there was this sort of anti democratic move from from the establishment and whole sections of the of the liberal class right and maybe a similar thing sort of happens with this as well that okay at the beginning you have some people who are like just anti vax because they were always anti vax and there were people who were skeptical of the MMR vaccine and whatever kind of nutty elements of of that or conspiracy theorists but as the repression of that becomes more and more severe and as the state becomes more and more insistent on vaccinate on vaccinating everyone or instituting vaccine passports which incidentally i think is a terrible term but you know we'll come back to that um the the more that the state becomes heavy-handed in its insistence on this and its continuation of these things it makes even the kind of anti-vaxxers seem more legitimate and more and more people are kind of drawn into that as going hang on this is just insane you know like people who might have been and i I wonder whether there's a certain uh, similar phenomenon going on where people who might have been for example you know pro-vaccination or, or we're okay with lockdowns or getting to the stage where they start questioning more and more, um, you know, the, the, the more heavy handed the state gets, the more insistent it becomes on these things. People but that's, I mean, but I, I mean, that is my, I mean, that is my kind of um, trajectory, you know, like I'm obviously not opposed to vaccination. I've been double vaxxed myself, um, but I understand the, you know, you know, vaccine hesitance and vaccine skepticism. I mean, not not the anti-vax thing, but I'm more understanding of vax hesitancy given the way in which the politics of vaccinations yeah. have played out, extending it to children, um, the insistence on, ba- on making it earlier and earlier, kind of um, rejigging the definition of vaxxed as, as seemingly has happened in Israel now, where you only are vaxxed if you have the booster jab as well. I mean, all of these um, kind of the encroachment and extension and the manipulation of what vaccination means. And also, I mean, you know, just the sheer kind of scale of the pharmaceutical interests involved in it. I think, I mean, I don't think that, you know, I don't think it's grounds for um, for uh, vax for being anti-vax, but I can understand why it kind of makes people who might be ambivalent or hesitant firmer in their suspicions. I think yeah. that is uh, straightforward. No, you know, think, that's straightforwardly think, obvious. Yeah, I think no, I think this is an excellent point that Alex made. Like, the, one of the questions is: Will, like, to what extent would will there be a group of people who are who, whatever their actual opinions on on vaccines, there might be, you know, as you said, Phil, you might might be pro. Um, but there's, but they don't like the the uh, seeming coercion or the seeming sort of necessity to access luxuries, <laughs> social benefits of various sorts, and they want to defend bodily autonomy. Is that a big proportion of, um, let's say, British society? I'm not convinced. I don't know how uh, vociferous this group that you um, identified with respect to Brexit, like the the Democratic Remainers. Like, I, I really didn't see a lot of those people who were like this principle I agree with in this specific instance I disagree with but that's because you don't it, see no, but that's because they're not democratic principle. remainers that's because they're leavers and be, and because they they became leavers very soon after right there were people who were ambivalent maybe they were maybe, called relievers there was yeah, the name I didn't, for them. I didn't meet very uh, many I met, I met some of them like, I, met, I, voted, no, I met some I of voted them. leave I voted remain but now I'm a leaver because no, I met I've, some of them. Because I've I'm, seen the contradictions of I met, I met of some the British of them political and, system. I, met, I don't. Not, I, I met some of them, not many, but also, I mean, but it was evident in the polls. There was a significant tranche of people yeah. who, even though they were dissatisfied with Brexit and the way it was going, they still, when you asked them, should it be seen through? Do we need to do it? They did, and I took that to indicate that portion of the population that was committed to democracy. Um, in in so, fact, I mean, the, I the minority is the remainers. I mean, th- th- that's what needs to be explained is yeah. that you have this hardcore of remainers who don't accept it, whatever happens. Those those are that's a very small group a large, of people. You, well, it was a large, a large minority. But it was, but it was it a large minority. Min- yes, it's a large minority. But that you encounter if you're in the worlds of NGOs or media or academia, but in society as what a whole, saying? isn't so what you, important. How, what are you saying? <laughs> I'm saying that you might be too close to these people. <laughs> no, but no, I'm, 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 I, yeah, I, I'm just quite skeptical that this was ever a, like, how did I not meet any of these people? I just, because you don't like, get out enough. That's fake, why. Fake polls, fake info. Uh, oh, on, Jesus on Christ. But, so, no, but to return to this, but to return to Wait, are to you denying? So you're saying I didn't meet these people and that you never saw a poll which showed Remainers who polls, still thought we I'm, should I'm, leave. Yeah, you can prove anything with, 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 uh, <laughs> with, with so you're saying, dogs. so if no, you don't believe I mean, in polls, then you're saying I never met these people. 
No, I'm just saying I I just don't know who you met. I didn't meet them. Okay, I okay, need, I need, okay. I only let's, trust let's... people that I've met that I've sh- shaken by the hand and uh, and had a a good conversation with. Mm. Uh, no, what what was I actually? I was actually had a serious point, which was, yeah, that like yeah. I mean, it's it's um, I think this is this is maybe what we'll see over the winter because it seems like the direction of travel is very much towards more coercive measures. What are the, you know, it is is there isn't. To, to return to your point also, Alex, about the heterogeneity of some of these um, kind of anti-lockdown protests or this this thing, that's partly because there isn't really a political representation. There isn't really a political vehicle. Yeah. I mean, none have been been very long-lasting or successful. Yeah, the the so, Austrian far right, actually, is like the one mentioned, I think, in the article or maybe in another piece on this, which is right. like channel... <laughs> Allow it. <laughs> the Austrian far right are the only ones who kind of are trying to... You know, seize this and, and, and try to give I had for... Yeah, exactly. Um, but, and yeah, but I, I guess, like, so I, I, I guess the, the question is: Is COVID as an issue still an exception? Like, eighteen months into it, that, that means that the principles that people might otherwise have had of civil liberties, whatever, are like are, are malleable. Um, I mean, I think I think my my sort that's, of judgment yeah. would be that it that it sort of is. So people who might so... otherwise be in one position are saying well this is a this is an exception this is a this is you know this is an emergency therefore different rules apply um but yeah that's just i mean i i actually was going to comment on that specifically because I, I was thinking in terms of universality versus its opposite so people might be willing and i'm you know i'm just completely spitballing here but people might be willing to tolerate something like lockdown because it's universal okay we obviously know that in reality some people still you know the large parts of people still have to go to work and others don't but there's an element of like a, of a blanket measure once it becomes much more targeted about these specific people who don't want to get vaccinated now specifically aren't allowed access to specific institutions that loses the uh, the, the 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 pretension of universality that these other measures yeah, had which are things that are allowed or people tolerate them in an emergency when the emergency carries on forever and starts becoming particular things like this group of people aren't allowed into these specific institutions it starts it, it offends any democratic sense that people might have or universal yeah, equality no, sense that people might have. I think, unfortunately, that democratic and universalist sense is um, sadly lacking, but I agree with you. And I think that probably will affect people's um, assessment, particularly if it comes to the fact that they might have friends and family who fall into that group. And like yeah. you say, it changes people's assessment of the situation from everyone pitching in together, even if it's in this kind of atomized stay at home um, be isolated way versus specific groups of people being um, disbarred from public life effectively. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, so the other, the only other thing I'd say about this piece is uh, generally the media's response to these protests has been to sweepingly castigate all of them as anti-vax protests. Um, you know, so as you know, kind of making out that they're all kind of um, five, you know, anti-5G, anti-vax kind of uh, weirdos and fanatics. And that has been more difficult to sustain the deeper that we get in and the more um, particularized, like you say, and um, draconian restrictions and vax mandates become. So I think the, like I say, it seems to me that this article is important insofar as it marks a shift in the way some of these narratives around COVID have formed and are being framed. Are people who are anti-5G more anti-5G than 4G and more anti-4G than 3G? It's or, a good question. You should ask one kind of them. Or uh, dilute? I mean, you want more connectivity, don't you? Even if it's being implanted in a, as a microchip, you want to, you know, be on faster speeds. No, but presumably you're less, if you're anti-5G, presumably you're not, a, are you against 4G as well? Or less so because it's less G. Yeah, right? only 80% is, is against it. I mean, uh, anyway. I'd accept it. I'd just, I'd just be like, away we go. <laughs> away we go. Oh, away we go. Okay. All right. Thank you. Jesus Christ. Sorry, what? <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying there? We we well, way we got my my pronunciation of the Mandarin might be not so good. I thought you were speaking Geordie. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The I think just one final point that I'd make, and it's not particularly um, like a, original one, but Bob Crow used to say that you should read the Evening Standard and just believe the opposite of it. Maybe this is this now applies, you know, to the Guardian as well. Just read everything they think is bad is good, and, and vice versa. It's been like that for a long time. Yeah, because that's why I said it wasn't very original or good. But but I don't think I've made that point before. Um, 
and Bob Crow did say about the Evening Standard, and it is true. Yeah, not, so. not, not original or good, but there's a first time for everything. Okay, we'll leave that there. Uh, thank you for listening <laughs> to this three articles. Uh, these generally are ones that we do for patrons only. So if you like this kind of thing, uh, do sign up. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Uh, and we'll be back with more guests and various other things, including a, a final roundup uh, responding to comments and criticisms that we've received along the year, uh, right at the towards the end of December, which will be our last episode of, uh, of this brilliant year that's been 2021 okay catch you later bye-bye